not have happened. Now, that wasn't just a culture clash. Uh, that wasn't even just a simple clash of etiquette. We don't do that sort of thing around here. It wasn't even just that. It was a clash of worlds. The clash of kingdoms. That's the problem that's at stake. You've got one world where regulations, the synagogue ruler, what he represents, you've got one world, one kingdom, where regulations have become, the, become the, the kind of the deciding factor in morality. You need to do this and you need to not do that to be moral and to be clean and to be pure and to be right. And that is now in contrast to another kingdom that Jesus represents, where it's the complete opposite of that. Instead of being about doing, it's about being. Uh, doing fails to change the inside. Just an outside thing, and it cannot penetrate inward. Whereas being changes the outside. How you act is because of who you are and what you value on the inside. The inside affects the outside. The outside cannot affect the inside. So doing doesn't change the being, but being changes the doing. Does that make sense? Does that help? Yes, good. And Christianity, in its truest form, of meeting with Jesus himself, God himself, who made himself our very means to receiving new birth, change on the inside, means therefore it's about the heart behind the hands. That's what Christianity in its truest form is all about. It's the being behind the doing first and foremost. And unfortunately, over the years, over the centuries, Christianity has often um, become synonymous still with that regulatory attitude, rightly or wrongly, uh, when people are asked to describe, people who aren't Christians, who don't follow Christ, who haven't met with him, they're asked to describe Christianity. Quite often on the list is, it's about a set of rules, it's about the, about the things you can't do anymore. That often comes up in conversation, doesn't it? But rather, the biblical answer is not about the things you don't get to do anymore, for example. It's about who you get to be in Christ. Who you get to be because of him. And because of that, you'll then live differently because you are different. The inside out. And Paul, he points this out in Colossians chapter 2, from verse 20. Paul, writing to the church in Colossae, he says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. He continues, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above. And that is what will change our hearts, and therefore that is what will change our behaviour. And so, coming back to Jesus speaking with this synagogue ruler, this is always about a clash of two worlds, not etiquette. You've got the earthly one, and you've got the heavenly one. And material solutions will not fix a spiritual problem. And so, coming back here to Luke chapter 13, Jesus, having immediate, immediately following this encounter, he seizes the moment to teach on how radically different his kingdom is compared to any other. I mean, look at it this way. Jesus, in his... Um, in his earthly position, in the flesh, as a human being, he had no political power over the ruling Roman Empire, did he? He was just some bloke from backwards Nazareth. And yet he still changed the world. How? Let's look at this further. Firstly, like I say, let's explore what the word kingdom means. A kingdom, simply put, is a territory 
ruled by a monarch. King Dom, king's domain. It's the domain of the king or queen. It's the domain of a monarch. King's domain, kingdom. And here, in our nation, for example, while we operate as a parliamentary democracy, we are actually governed by Her Majesty's government. She's still the monarch, and we're the United Kingdom, the domain of the monarch. So ultimately, obviously what's been happening recently in the Tory party, it's all spontaneously combusted again, and it's going to continue to... We only get the end of the ballot till the beginning of September, don't we? So we're going to be hearing about this for a lot longer yet. But even within what's happening at the moment, for example, if there had been a vote of no confidence in Boris Johnson and they've proposed an alternative leader that they've chosen, an alternative Prime Minister, and Boris Johnson refuses to go, the Queen has the constitutional right and power to dismiss him, to remove him and install the new Prime Minister. She's the one who has the ultimate power to go, no, you, you, there's a vote from your government, there's a, a vote of no confidence in you, they have an alternative leader and you're refusing to go, she has every right to remove him as the monarch. She does. She doesn't. It's never been done. It's never come to that. But she has every constitutional right to do so. The Queen rules the land through the hands-on administration of an elected party, but it's her kingdom. And Jesus here is referring to his heavenly kingdom, the place where he rules. Now, you could ask the question, doesn't he rule over everything anyway? Doesn't he rule, doesn't he rule over everything? Well, that is true. He does rule over the earth regardless. Psalm chapter 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It's his world, it's his universe. But Jesus is not everyone's Lord by their choice. See the difference? An easy way to understand it is uh, Jeremy Treat, he's a is uh, a great pastor in, in LA, and he sums it up in eight words. He says, Jesus' kingdom is God's reign through God's people in God's place. Let me say that again. His kingdom is God's reign through God's people in God's place. And as much as the earth is God's place, but his kingdom is his reign through his people. Two different things. It's all within a wider culture of people who don't know him yet. It's a kingdom within another domain. It's a kingdom within a kingdom. It's, phys- it's in a physical world, but it's a heavenly realm. Does that make sense? So some of this hard, it's a bit abstract sometimes, it's hard to get our heads around it. We get it, but we can't quite get it. Luke chapter 17, uh, Jesus in verse 20, but he's being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God will come. Jesus answers them. He says, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Or will they say, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He's saying it's already here, it's already happening. You just haven't spotted it yet. And Jesus' kingly domain, it doesn't have geographical or even cultural borders. I mean, we live in a world that yearns for a lack of such. We yearn for everyone to get along, give peace a chance and all that. But there's something in us that wants it. But it's constantly, we, humanity, we're constantly divided by invisible state lines, let alone visible ones, aren't we? Even just across the generations in this room. Some of us here are boomers. Some of us here are Generation X. Hello. Some of us are millennials. Some of us are Generation Z. Some of our tiny tots are Generation Alpha now. We've got different generations within this room. We are all recognisable, not just by our age, uh, or by the title given to them, you're a boomer, I'm a Gen Xer, but also by our 
outlooks and our values. They're actually very different. And we often misunderstand one another in our interactions, not just because of use of language. Sometimes I've emails back, I don't know what TBF or BTW means, sorry. I keep forgetting, not everyone knows it. We use different language often, but no, we don't just have misunderstandings because of that, or just because of our different tastes and our different interests, but we actually have literally different mindsets, different ways of thinking. The further apart each generation is from another, radically different ways of thinking and radically different values. And it's all because of the eras we grow up in shape us differently. So events that happen when we're growing up. Some of us grew up with living in London. There were bombings by the IRA. That affects how you live. It's just what we had. Other people didn't have that and that kind of thing. But that's for a particular experience, for a particular generation. But at the same time, common experiences, differences in technology, each of them, they all have a collective influence on each generation as those things uh, change as we grow up. And as a result, some generations resist change more than others. Other generations embrace change more than others. Some generations welcome diversity more than others. Other generations struggle with that a bit. And it all naturally creates an invisible divide. As much as we all want to get on, it's not always possible. Just because the way we're shaped by the world we live in, being human. But also, even when it comes to ethnicities as well, where we as a nation, we are increasingly a nation that represents many different ethnicities, which is brilliant. And yet, wonderful as that is, hard as we try to help matters, like often attracts like, doesn't it? And uh, invisible borders can appear between our different communities. We can be living physically side by side in the same town or the same city, but often with limited crossover. That can happen. Even in Herne Bay, while we might be predominantly white, we've got lots of um, Romanians and Turks and Cypriots living here, and while we may interconnect, we don't exactly overlap a lot, do we? We often keep to ourselves. It happens a lot. Division can still so easily remain across the ages, across the tribes and communities and so on. And yet, there is a wonderful, wonderful picture of God's fully realised kingdom in Zechariah chapter 8. Regarding what I've just said, Zechariah chapter 8, verse 3, Thus says the Lord, it's about his future kingdom, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Here we go. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Old and young, there, straight away. Thus says the Lord of hosts, he continues, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Old and young from the east and the west, all living in those streets, those beautiful streets in perfect harmony. You've got this city that is bustling with life and laughter, people of all kinds together, and it's marvellous to, to God's eyes. What a brilliant, brilliant picture. Isn't that, that doesn't make your heart sing. So can we see a bit more of that? One day it will fully happen. It just hasn't happened fully yet. But that is the outworking of Jesus' kingdom and its final destination. So with that in mind, therefore, Jesus' kingdom, it sounds wonderful, doesn't it? It sounds brilliant. We don't always see a lot of it being worked out. So therefore, do we just simply have to wait until he comes again 
before we get to enjoy it? Sit back, wait for him to come, and then it'll happen. Well, remember what I said earlier, for example, Jesus, in his earthly position, he had no political power over the ruling empire at the time, and yet he still changed this world. Roman Empire is no longer around. This world is radically different, not just from Roman rule, but in so many universal, across-the-ages ways. For all its horrors in this world, it is significantly different and better because of Christ and his church. That's not hubristic, crazy things to say. Genuinely, human rights, women's rights, humanitarian aid, education, healthcare, the arts, and so on, they are all majorly influenced for the better by Christ and his church over the centuries. That is an absolute guaranteed fact. I'm reading a brilliant book by Tom Holland at the moment. Not Spider-Man, one of the other Tom Hollands. There's quite a few of them. Tom Holland, the historian, has written a book called Dominion. It's uh, nodding. It's great. 600-page tome. And what he does, basically, he's not a Christian, but you can tell by the way he writes that he probably wants to be. <laughs> Pray for that man. I don't think he's that, oh, seriously, I don't think he's that far. But he writes about how our assum- in the Western world, for example, our assumptions of human rights, human value, and so on, they're actually Christian values. And he, t- he takes us through history from pre-Christ arriving in the BCs up until modern times. He takes us through and shows us how Jesus' kingdom has transformed the modern world as we know it for the better. Kingdom values pervading all things. Now, how did that happen? Because Jesus, he didn't push Pontius Pilate out of his chair and then gradually ascend the Roman hierarchy until he got the bigger boy's chair. He didn't do that, did he? That's not what happened. So how did he topple the actual Roman Empire? Well, other factors are involved. It's not just one thing. But the long story short is that within a few centuries, the growing Christianity's focus on the one true God, that ate away at Rome's collection of gods, and it pulled the rug from under them, declaring their emperors as deities as well. And gradually, inch by inch, as more people turned to Christ and serving the one true God who is in charge solely, Roman power dissolved until it collapsed. From the grassroots from the inside out, the empire fell. Jesus' kingdom grew within an earthly empire, God's reign through God's people in God's place, until that empire was completely vanquished. See, Jesus' kingdom is not outside in. It's not top down. Like any other kingdom, it's inside out. It's the absolute opposite of any other attempt in this world to affect life-giving change. And that's something we Christians still need to remember and be encouraged by. It's like the, the Crusades or Western European nations days of empire, where you turn up to another country, stick a flag, and you go, you're all Christian now. It, it doesn't work like that, does it? It doesn't work. And I would suggest that even here in the UK, a ruling Christian party won't solve our nation's problems. The answer to his kingdom growing here in the UK is not having a Christian political party in power, it's having Christians in every political party. Salt and light, right across the buffet, making a difference from the inside out. So how does this work in terms of good and evil? How do we understand uh, good and evil? Is it the same? Is this good versus evil? Well, it is. It's a good kingdom and ultimately an evil kingdom because it's not living for God, it's living for other. But many people would agree. If you ask anyone on the street, 
most people would agree there is good and evil in this world, and neither would claim to be one or the other. People say, I'm a good person, but I'm not perfect. And not many people would go, yeah, I'm evil. <laughs> of course they wouldn't. But most people accept that in terms of behaviour, humanity, we're a mix of both. We're capable of both. As humans, we are complex. We are capable of doing both good and evil. Even if that's not extremes, like giving away millions of pounds in complete generosity and then going off and murdering someone. But even somewhere a bit more in the middle, where you can help your neighbour with their shopping and then moan about and be on their back. <laughs> We're capable of these things, aren't we? But that still doesn't mean you can serve both simultaneously. They're completely opposed to each other. You can't have two masters. And ultimately, we belong to one kingdom or another. And the Bible has much to say about that. But as people who have seen Christ for who he truly is, this man of history who proved to be God himself in the words he said and the wonders he performed, in the death he suffered, literally taking on himself our propensity for evil, and in his incredible resurrection from the grave, he demonstrated once and for all that he is the king of all kings. For those of us who've seen him for that, and go, I'm, I'm, I'm following you, I'm in. Through that, we receive new life. And the Bible says, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. If you belong to him, you've been removed from one kingdom and placed in one far, far better, forever. Removed from one domain into another. We were in the domain of darkness and through Jesus we're now in the domain of the king. We've changed our address. And so here we are, in God's place, belonging to a new kingdom, and we need to learn what it means to trust this new world that we're living for when everything else around us can feel and look as if it's completely against it. Well, it is, because that's another opposing kingdom. And this is why, coming back to these verses, this is why Jesus explains and describes his kingdom in, these, in this way. Because the Jewish people he's talking to, we need to understand, they were, they were on the lookout for God's kingdom to be fully revealed very quickly and their expectation was that it would be top down and outside in. Jesus, the Messiah, riding up on a big horse with a big army, toppling the emperor. They, they believed it was going to be established suddenly and decisively overnight, sweeping the rolling, ruling Romans aside and taking the empire's throne. While all along, God's kingdom has never been like that. Yes, there's a king, and yes, it's his domain, but it's not born out of or operated by legislation and rule, but rather through adoption and new birth. It's grassroots up from the inside out. And so, Jesus, he uses two pictures here to help them, and therefore us, grasp quite how different his kingdom really is. And he uses these two pictures, one of a mustard seed, and one of this thing called leaven. Let's just have a look at them. Let's read those verses again. The first two verses about mustard seed. Jesus said, therefore, verse 18, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Mustard seed. Mustard seed is a remarkable thing. It's only one to, one to two millimetres wide. You'll see one on a video, and I'm going to show a little video at the end. You'll see a mustard seed, tiny little thing. It's not the smallest seed in existence. An orchid, for example, is at least half the size, sometimes a tenth of that size. Much, much smaller. But a mustard seed is the smallest of the kind that you sow, effectively. And from such a humble beginning, 
it will become something large enough that Jesus describes here for birds to shelter in. Pliny the Elder is a naturalist from uh, uh, Jesus' era just after. Naturalist, not a naturist, different. He was, in, he was into plants. And he said, mustard is extremely beneficial for the health. It grows entirely wild. Once it's been sown, it is scarcely possible to get the place free of it. And when it falls, it germinates at once. So it takes root quickly and easily. It's difficult to remove and it's beneficial for our health. God's kingdom. Doesn't that sound brilliant? What a brilliant picture. And what happens as a result, like I say, it becomes something large enough for birds to make their nests in it. Now, some commentators believe when Jesus mentions about birds nesting in its branches, they, some commentators believe that's referring to spiritual opposition. Um, elsewhere in the Bible, birds often represent the devil and minions stealing seed away, the parable of the sower, for example, um, or bringing attack and, and so on. Um, but even so, therefore, it means the mustard plant is, has become large enough to attract spiritual infiltration and attack, which means you're onto a good thing. <laughs> When you're, get, when you're getting spiritual attack, it means you're on the right track normally. He's not bothered when you're on the wrong track. He's quite happy then, isn't he? Think about it. So if, if that's the case, it's implying that this is big enough to, to demand, it's a threat to the devil's kingdom. But that's not the language that's being used here, to be honest. Elsewhere in the Bible, birds can also represent people outside of God's uh, immediate community, non-Jews, us, for example, being brought in. For example, there's a beautiful picture that God himself describes in Ezekiel chapter 17. Look it up and read it. It makes the heart sing again. It describes God taking, taking a sprig from a twig. It goes from that tree, it's a cedar tree, I'm going to take a twig. And from that twig, I'm going to take a sprig. He's got this tiny little dot. And he says, I'm going to plant it on a high and lofty mountain where it will grow so big that every kind of bird will nest in it. Beautiful. And in which case, translating it back here to what Jesus is saying, I'm sure he's got that in mind when he's saying this. This mustard plant, therefore, is simply abnormally huge to allow a place for shelter for so many others. Jesus' kingdom, it just experiences abnormal, beyond the norm, growth from such a humble beginning to the point where, yeah, it can be a target for attack from the kingdom of darkness, but also that it's far-reaching enough to provide shelter for those it didn't even start with. Jesus' kingdom... Jesus' kingdom. A tiny beginning with a huge global impact. Jesus started with Andrew. Jesus, after his ministry, after his ministry began, when he came out of the desert, got baptized, he started with Andrew. That was it. Andrew brought along his brother Peter. And very soon after, two more brothers came along, James and John. Suddenly there's four of them. Next thing you know, those four become 12. You've got the 72, then the hundreds, and then the thousands. And now today, there are more than 2 billion people who claim to follow Christ. And that's just the ones who are alive today, not the ones who have already passed on into glory. I don't know what those numbers are. Many, many billions. Tiny beginnings leading to huge global impact for his glory. In the same way, in our own lives, don't write off the small things. A smile can lead to a connection. And a connection can lead to a relationship, a friendship. And a friendship can lead to things of heaven, to breakthrough, which can lead to lives transformed. We've got plenty of those stories in this room alone. And just start with a smile. Don't write off these things. 
Small moments that are not actually as tiny in importance as they appear, but they have a big ripple effect when Holy Spirit's at work through it, eventually renewing individuals or households or workplaces, communities, streets, whatever it might be. Don't write off those small things. Don't write them off. Just sowing tiny seeds of kindness, a smile, offers of prayer, whatever it might be, know that any of those moments can lead to a place where people find eternal shelter. Birds resting in the kingdom's branches. Like I say, as far as the Jews were concerned, Jesus' world-changing kingdom was expected to arrive as a military coup. Instead, it arrived as a mustard seed. And look where we are now. Billions across the globe are now making a difference in their homes and their neighbourhoods. Small, leading to massive, over and over and over again. Don't write off the small beginnings. That's a mustard seed. Let's look at the next two verses, because Jesus continues. He gives us another understanding of what the kingdom of God is like, using this thing called leaven. Again, he said, verse 20, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Now, leaven is, is a rising agent like yeast, sourdough. It's a leavening agent, something which softens and lightens dough. Um, what it does, it produces gas bubbles within the mix, and over time, these microorganisms, they reproduce and reproduce and multiply, and they spread through the whole lump to make it all rise. Now, leaven inf- infiltrates the batch, and it causes it to become light and to become flavoursome. If you've ever had unleavened bread, it's not as nice, is it? Let's be fair. It's not the same. It causes it to become light and fluffy and full of flavour. Now, this is a large batch here. This is like uh, leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. Three measures of flour is 25 to 30 kilos. It's not a bag. <laughs> 25 to 30 kilos. She puts a little bit of leaven in it. And this small beginning again, a little bit of leaven, it multiplies within this huge batch of dough and it spreads through the hole and it permeates through the whole batch until everything is affected and it's irreversible. When you've got leaven bread, you can't take the leaven out. Once it's in there, it's not coming out. Remember Pliny talking about mustard. It's scarcely possible to get the place free of it. Once it's in, it ain't coming out. I love that. So Jesus' kingdom leaven it, it infiltrates a place, a people, and it lightens and flavours the whole. Our presence, when we set our minds on the heavy realm at work, sometimes we can just abdicate by our way of thinking. We're just more bothered about what I'm going to do tomorrow, what film I'm going to watch, or seeing my mate, or can I go and hide in my bed now? We just get caught up in this stuff. But when, when our frame of mind is such that we're focusing on the heavenly realm at work through us and allowing Holy Spirit consciously being aware of what he's up to and what he wants us to get involved in, when we do that, our presence can bring lightness in spirit and a heavenly flavour to whatever situation or group we find ourselves in. The leaven on display. Our presence, when we have a heavenly presence of mind brings God's presence. Let me say that again. Our presence, when we have a heavenly presence of mind, brings God's presence. Isn't that wonderful? So in that same way, a mustard seed, tiny mustard seed, leads to shade and to shelter. It affects others for his glory. And leaven brings godly lightness and flavour. It blesses others for his glory. Don't despise the small things. 
Because even just in the scope that it represents, a mustard seed shows how far God's kingdom spreads. Compared to its small beginnings, it goes high and far and wide, doesn't it? From a tiny seed. And the leaven shows how deeply it spreads. No matter how huge the culture may be, it will infiltrate all of it, ultimately. Jesus' kingdom from the inside out has spread so far and so wide and so deeply that it not only suffocated the Roman Empire, but it has reached every continent, every nation in this world, and one day will have reached every people group that exists. The promise is there, it says so, in the Bible. So, we're coming to an end now. What can we do with this? I I hope you've been encouraged by that. Be encouraged. Simply, don't write off the small things. Be encouraged by this. Don't write off the small things. A smile, a kind word, a meal, an offer of prayer, a listening ear, weeping with those who weep. I met a guy uh, this week called Carlo. Randomly walked up to me in the street and goes, excuse me, mate, have you got a guitar pick? He knows a guitarist when he sees one. He's quite eccentrically dressed. We've spotted him today. So Jenny now knows exactly what I'm talking about. He he looks like like a mad guitarist busker. You know the type when you see him. He's brilliant. And he's house-sitting for some rich friends right on the seafront. And we just got chatting. Now, I don't think that was an accidental moment. For him to come up to me and ask for a guitar pick, which I did have, so he talks about it. A random question. I think it was a divine opportunity. Saw him again today. I know exactly where he's living. I'm going to keep an eye out for him now. I'm not going to write off that small thing. I believe that can become something. Don't write off the small moments. And as our presence, when we have a heavenly presence of mind, can can bring God's presence. I'm going to seek that more. Be encouraged by this. Do not write off the small things. Humbling yourself among others is a big thing. Don't write it off. Being faithful with what you've been given, even if you don't think it's much, being faithful with what you've been given is a big thing. Don't write it off. The everyday small stuff of raising your children, that has big ripple effects. Don't despise the day of small things. Don't think it's for nothing. Keep going. You're doing a great job. Keep going. Praying and fasting in secret is a big thing, not a little thing. Don't write it off. Giving in secret. It's a big thing. Don't write it off. Cherish it. Remembering forgotten people, even if nobody else notices you've done it, is a big thing. Don't write off these small little things. And even in Birchington, we're looking to plant the church in Birchington at some point. We've had two prayer meetings there of ten people at a time. Small beginnings, don't write it off. Imagine what God can do with that. We now know what we need to do next. God has spoken. We'll be sharing more of that at some point. We're going to be pressing in there. That village of 11,000 people in the next few years is going to be 18,000 people. Don't write off what God can do with a humble beginning. We're going to watch a video now just to finish, just to encourage us about what God is doing across the world from one little mustard seed. But uh, let me just pray. We'll watch the video. I'll leave it to David and Pete to take us further. Lord, we thank you that you are still at work, that you are still interested in humanity that you've created and you want your family back. We thank you that you've swept us into that already. 
We're so grateful that you're opened our eyes sooner rather than later. But Lord, there are so many more that don't know you. But Lord, we have great courage just from hearing how you describe your kingdom to realise not only, not only can you do amazing things, you do do amazing things. So we thank you for inviting us in to partner with you in this. Help us as we get up on our Monday mornings, as we're resting on our Thursday evenings, whatever we're doing, may we just have the heavenly presence of mind to bring your presence into wherever we're at and to not write off the small things, but to see them through your eyes, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.